This morning, we're going to be in the book of Luke, looking at chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. We'll be in Luke 19, 1 through 10. So if you would read with me, it says, He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost." Health fads are always changing, aren't they? One day they'll say, oh, this is healthy for you, you should eat this, and then it seems like the next they say, oh, you know, stay away from that because, you know, it's going to cause cancer. And, and they're always changing their treatments and their advice, and it never seems to be the same. And there's some things that people used to do and think were healthy or cured diseases that are really surprising. One of those were radioactive drinks. In the early 1900s, people believed that radioactivity was healthy for you. Radioactive items were sold, including radium pendants for rheumatism, uranium blankets for arthritis, anti-aging radioactive cosmetics, radioactive water, and more. Another one was the heroin cough suppressant. Heroin cough syrup was developed by Bayer Laboratories in 1898. Bayer discontinued making heroin by 1910 when the addictive properties of the drug were determined to be higher than they had originally thought. And then the U.S. government made it illegal in 1924, not long after. And perhaps one of the strangest ones is the lobotomy. Procedure was thought to be a cure for mental illness. During its popularity between the 1940s and 50s, over 40,000 people in the U.S. were treated with it. The neurologist Walter Freeman developed a quick method called the transorbital lobotomy, or ice pick lobotomy as it was called. The patient would be made unconscious by electroshock, then an instrument which resembled an ice pick was inserted above the eyeball through the orbit. When the brain was reached, the pick would be moved back and forth to destroy neural pathways, and the process was repeated on the other side. So, Uh, If my doctor prescribed that to me, I would uh, have to decline. But while health tips and treatments have changed over time, what I have to tell you today has stayed the same. It is certain and reliable to never change. It has always been this way, and it will always be. So this morning, we're going to look at how God reclaims lost sinners and what that means for us here today. The title of my sermon is The Great Reclamation. 
For God himself does not change, and neither does his means of seeking and saving the lost. So the story of Zacchaeus here demonstrates how God sovereignly and effectively seeks and saves lost sinners through the person and work of Jesus, and how sinners are to respond to that. It is today, as it was for Zacchaeus, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the message is simple today. If you are lost, you can be found. So there's three elements we're going to look at this morning of the great reclamation. First, we'll see the reclaimed. Then we'll see the reclamation. And then lastly, we'll look at the reclaimer. So let's start in verse 1. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. We step into the narrative of Jesus' earthly life and ministry as it's nearing its grand conclusion. Him and his closest disciples are headed up to Jerusalem, where Jesus will die a criminal's death on a gruesome cross. Not long from now, Jesus will enter the city to shouts of praise and welcome, but leave in mocking and rebuke. Yet in his death, burial, and resurrection, he will accomplish the mission for which God has sent him. He seems to be off the beaten path as he's traveling through Jericho, but we'll see that it was necessary for Jesus to go through Jericho, that he had a divine appointment that he would definitely keep. Now, Jericho was like the Las Vegas of our day. It was like Las Vegas in that day, and many wealthy officials and celebrities had vacation homes there, and it was a bustling city with a lively nightlife, full of all the pleasures that sin could offer. It was also situated on the main trade route of the region and was a center for trade and business. Many greedy businessmen were here to see if they could get a piece of the action by any means necessary. And so we have the setting in the town in which Zacchaeus makes his living with no shortage of opportunity to make his bank account grow. So verse 1 showed us the setting for this story, and in verse 2 we are introduced to one of the key players, Zacchaeus, which we will call the reclaimed. But as the Bible describes him, we realize that he's anything but reclaimed as of yet. Look at verse 2 with me. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, the name Zacchaeus means pure or innocent one. And so apparently his parents had some high hopes for him, and they prayed that their child would grow up to be a godly, God-fearing man. But... uh, Zacchaeus was anything but that. So we meet Zacchaeus and we're told he's a tax collector. And what's more is that he's a chief tax collector. Now, in these days, as was much of the world, Israel was under Roman occupation and oppression. And the Roman government would contract with locals to collect taxes from the people. And those who wanted to be tax collectors for the Roman government would have to pay a hefty fee in order to gain this position. But once in, they would collect taxes from their people, and whatever extra they could squeeze out of the people, they were allowed to keep for themselves. So naturally, they were viewed as traitors to their country, traitors to Israel. They were considered by their neighbors and relatives as the worst scum of society. Because they sided with the Roman oppressors, the Israelites deemed them as ceremonially unclean, and they were shunned from participating in the temple worship. 
and even anyone who would come in contact with them or associate with them were considered unclean and defiled as well. So not just because their trade as tax collectors were they held in such contempt, but what's more is that many of them would tax above and beyond what Caesar would require and therefore abuse their people further. And this would inevitably gain them great riches and with it great hatred. So we come to Zacchaeus, and he's not just a traitor for being a tax collector, but he was the head tax collector of the whole operation in Jericho. And as such, he would take a cut from the rest of his fellow tax collectors and the the money that they extorted from people. Zacchaeus would get a cut. And so, as the Bible aptly states, he was rich, and he was very rich. And Zacchaeus was one who he would keep his hands clean of the dirty work while he kept his hands on the dirty money. And so therefore, Zacchaeus was most likely the most hated man in all of Jericho, public enemy number one. Because of his greed and love for money, he chose to forsake God and country and seek out success and power. He had doubtlessly cheated and abused countless people in his pursuit of riches, trampling over even the most helpless of society. Zacchaeus was, by all definitions, lost and estranged from God, and no doubt headed for an eternity of God's judgment. But something was different in this day, for in the heart of this ragamuffin sinner was a longing and yearning he could not contain. Look with me in verse 3. It says, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowds he could not, because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus had heard about the signs and wonders that Jesus had done and that Jesus was coming to Jericho. Perhaps Zacchaeus had heard that Jesus would associate with sinners and tax collectors, that Jesus would eat with them and associate with them. So this news caused a big stirring of curiosity in this small man. But there were some obstacles to his desire to see Jesus. First, there was a hindrance in Zacchaeus' heart a void he could not fill with all the riches and pleasures of this life. Even though he had everything anyone could ever want, riches, power, and all the pleasures of life at his fingertips, contentment and true happiness were just out of reach. His bank account was big, but his stature was small. His longing for happiness was right, but what he had settled for in wealth was wrong. He thought perhaps if he could just see Jesus and meet Jesus, maybe, just maybe, the void could be filled. But in addition to his heart, his height was a hindrance, since there was a big crowd and he was a little man. Let's see in verse 4, he says, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus was not about to let his limitations get in the way of his curiosity. Forsaking his pride, he did what no self-respecting man in this time would do. He ran and he climbed up a tree. Many times pride is a hindrance to those who would look for Jesus. Humility, a letting go of one's pride, is necessary for true repentance to take place. Jesus illustrates this in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, 9 through 14. If you'd like to look there, Luke 18 9 through 14. 
And it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. It is only when we humble ourselves, realizing that we are despicable sinners in need of a Savior, that true repentance can take place and we can be found. As we reflect on the reclaimed, there's a word to unbelievers here. No one, and I mean no one, is too lost that they cannot be found. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, you are never beyond the saving grace of God. You see, the gospel is no respecter of persons. It sees no difference between the richest, most powerful, and the poorest and most pitiful of our world. We see this demonstrated in the contrast of the poor blind man that Jesus heals at the end of chapter 18 and this story of the rich Zacchaeus. So as Jesus was coming into Jericho, there was a blind man there who was calling out to him and calling out saying, Son of David, heal me. And the crowd dismissed him and said, you know, don't bother the master right now. Don't bother the teacher with your noise. But he persisted and kept calling to Jesus. And so despite the crowds, Jesus called to the man and and had him brought to him and healed him because of the man's faith. This poor blind man was healed because of the faith that he had in Jesus. So it doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor, young or old, married or or single, black or white, Republican or Democrat. If you grew up in Sunday school, or if this is your first time in church, you need Jesus. And if you are lost, you can be found. Maybe you're thinking, there's no way that can be me. Can be me. Surely I'm too lost, too far gone for the loving, seeking arms of Jesus to reach me. But friend, I I must stop you there. Don't let your pride keep you from embracing this reality. The good news is that Jesus loves you enough to meet you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. I'm here this morning to declare this great truth to you. If you are lost, you can be found. There's also a word to believers here. Don't ever give up on anyone. Jumping ahead a little in the story, we see the onlookers as they witness Jesus' interaction with disciples. In verse 7, it says, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner? We see how they grumble and complain about how Jesus is being the guest of a sinner. Perhaps even Zacchaeus' own family and friends thought him beyond saving. Let's not be like those crowds and write people off as being beyond saving. 
when we look at our society and we see people of different ideologies and different orientations, we can easily have a sense of superiority and condescension as though those kinds of people couldn't possibly be saved. But it is just those kinds of people that Jesus has come to seek and save. We should have compassion and love in our hearts for these people, not bitterness and anger and pride towards them. But maybe it's not anger or pride that you feel towards a particular unbeliever, but grief and sorrow. Have you been praying for someone who's lost to be found? Maybe you've been praying for a long time, and it seems like the more you pray, the worse they get. Is it a hard-hearted husband or wife, a son or daughter, a mother or father, brother or sister, friend or neighbor, classmate or coworker? Let this story of Zacchaeus encourage you to keep praying, stay diligent, and believe that God could be working in the heart of that person in ways that you can't see and could never imagine, because there is no sinner who is beyond saving and that God can find to seek and to save those who are lost. So we've seen the reclaimed and how no one is beyond saving. Now let's consider the reclamation. So here in the reclamation, we're going to look at the means of salvation, the way sinners are saved, and then we'll look at the results of salvation, what happens because of salvation. Look with me in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. In Jesus' statement, we see how the lost is found, how a sinner is saved. Rather than being defiled by associating with sinners, Jesus would cleanse and purify sinners. Rather than being dragged down by them, Jesus would reach over and lift them up. You see, because... More than just a story about Jesus inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house, this is a picture of salvation in this story. We see first that a sinner is saved according to divine appointment by God's free grace. We see this when Jesus says to Zacchaeus that he must stay at his house. That term must, let's not miss it, because that's a loaded word. It speaks of necessity. It wasn't that Zacchaeus might be saved or or that he could be saved, but it was that he must be saved. It was by the sovereign decree of God, by God's eternal plan, that Zacchaeus would be saved on this day and at this hour. For you see, it is from eternity past that God has foreordained those who would seek and save, those he would reclaim as his own. And rather than being an idea that we should dread, as some people do, this doctrine shows ever glorious the sovereign free grace with which God saves sinners. God calls sinners, as Charles Spurgeon puts it, not in measures, but in units. God looks out over the entire realm of space and time and seeks out individuals in order that he might call them by name, out of darkness and into light, from death to life, from lostness to foundness. So in the means of salvation, we have it is by God's grace. And another aspect of the means of salvation, the way a sinner is saved, is by the faith of the sinner. Look at verse 6. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 6 tells us that Zacchaeus, in response to the command of Jesus, came down immediately and received Jesus, received him joyfully. That word received, we have the language of faith. It was not just that Zacchaeus let Jesus come into his house and entertained him gladly. No, it's far more than that. The lost sinner received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So in this, the great reclamation, the grace of uh, by grace through faith does God save Zacchaeus. And so it is today with anyone who is lost and estranged from God. The means of salvation has not changed. It is by faith in Christ alone that one may be saved. So again, I say, if you are lost, you can be found. So now the results of salvation. That's how a sinner is saved. And now let's look at the results of salvation Verse 8 accounts for us the evidence of the change that has taken place in the heart of this tax collector. Look with me there. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus stands up and declares his intention to give half of his goods to the poor and to reconcile with anyone he's wronged, paying them back four times what he took. Now this four times is important because Zacchaeus goes above and beyond what the law, the Jewish law, would have required of someone who committed these kinds of crimes. He, He goes beyond what was required. Yet he did not earn his salvation because of these good works, but he did them as a result of it, out of the overflow of the joy in his heart of being saved by Jesus, he does these good works. In other words, as John Calvin has said, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. One is not saved by good works, but good works come as a result of salvation. So this sinner's salvation is evidenced by the radical change in his affections. So he he went from being consumed and controlled by the love of money to being controlled and motivated by the love of Christ. If this story brings up another story to mind, it's because it's a sharp contrast to the rich young ruler who comes in chapter 18 to Jesus. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep these commandments. And he says, I have. I've done all those things from my youth. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell all of your goods. Give it all to the poor and come follow me. And what happened? He went away sad because he had great riches. Now, it's not that he would earn salvation because he gave away all of his things, but Jesus saw right to his heart and knew that he loved his money more than he loved Jesus. And yet we don't have that here. We have another rich man, Zacchaeus, who gives away what he owns and goes from loving money to loving Christ. So when God reclaims this lost sinner, their affections are redirected away from the pleasures of sin toward the pleasure of knowing and loving Jesus. Have your affections been changed? Do you love this world that is passing away less and less and love Jesus more and more? Is Jesus truly better to you 
as we've sang, is the cry of your heart to, to make God believe, make you believe that Jesus is better than any comfort, than all riches, than any victory. Is Jesus better to you than anything else? Is your walk with Christ consistent with your Christian confession? It's not enough to claim to be a Christian, but our lives must back it up. Is there evidence, fruit in your life that shows that you're a Christian? The, the good deeds we do as an overflow uh, of the grace of God in our hearts, as a gratefulness to what God has done for us. Is there proof of that in your life? Are you living your life in obedience to God because you love him and want to bring him glory for the work he accomplished in saving you? If not, that might mean that you don't know God and you have not been made right with him by being forgiven of your sin. So examine your heart today. Look at your life and decide, are you truly saved or are you in, uh, a Christian in name only? Or maybe it's that you need the joy of your salvation restored Maybe it's that the cares of this life have grown up and, and choked out the joy that you once had in the salvation that God has brought in your life. Maybe the, the cares and the distractions of this world have, have pulled you away and that you, you forfeited that joy you have in Christ and have forgotten all that he's done for you. That can be restored. We can have that again through time spent with God in prayer and in his word and with his people. So if the cares of this world have brought you down, if you have forfeited that joy and that peace that passes all understanding and that security of knowing we are in Christ, then, then come back to his word. Come back to spend time with your Savior, to know him and to love him more and spend time with his people and, and, and love and serve Christ with all of your heart. Pray God would give you the grace you need to live that fruitful life for him. And pray for him to enable you to share and show Christ to others by what you say and do. So this last element we're going to look at of the great reclamation we will look at is the reclaimer himself. So we've seen the reclaimed and we've seen the reclamation and now we will look at the reclaimer. Look at verse 9, please. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus declares that salvation has indeed come to Zacchaeus. He declares him a son of Abraham, not because he's of Jewish descent and a physical descendant of Abraham, but because he's a true son of Abraham through faith. In Galatians 3.7, Paul tells his readers to know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then it is Jesus who confirms the salvation of this lost sinner. Folks, we are not Christians because our parents were and dragged us to church every week. And we're not Christians simply because we claim that we are. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Romans 10, 9 through 10 makes this clear. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is the work of the Holy Spirit done in your heart when you make that confession and believe in your heart 
that you become lost or you become found. And when God saves you, it's not because of the good works you've done, but because of his free grace that he has offered. Now on to verse 10. In what is most certainly the summary of the whole gospel, and indeed the mission statement of Jesus, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. This Son of Man, it was Jesus' favorite term for himself. It was the title he most used to call himself. In this, he identifies with his creation. It is his way of saying, I am one of you. And yes, one of us, but wholly different, wholly apart from us. He is the God-man. God taking on the form of a human, identifying with us, suffering with us, empathizing with us. Then Jesus says, he has come. Jesus wasn't just born like we were, no control over the situation and the time or the place. But he, he didn't just arrive, he came to fulfill the mission given to him by God the Father. Stepping out of eternity and down into time, Jesus came to carry out his orders. And finally, we see that mission was the great reclamation. The Son of Man came to seek and to save, to recover and rescue, to reclaim and redeem, the whole purpose in Jesus' coming is to reclaim those who are lost. And it's shown beautifully in Jesus' own parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and the prodigal son, as we read earlier. That is Jesus lovingly and diligently seeking out and saving the lost and recovering them and bringing them back. His unending care in carrying out his mission is demonstrated in his determination and his relentlessness in seeking out lost saviors. And this idea goes even all the way back to the Old Testament, where we see the saving purposes of God for sinners. If you would turn to Ezekiel 34.11. Ezekiel 34.11. It says this in verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now down to verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, I, and I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God loves lost sinners and is searching out his lost sheep that he may bandage their broken legs and, and carry them on his strong shoulders to safety. This is the heart of God the very reason he sent his son to gather them together. And Jesus will most assuredly accomplish his mission. You see, because Jesus lived the perfect life that no man ever could. He is pictured as a perfect lamb led to the slaughter. And despite his perfection, Jesus gave himself up freely to be hung on a cross. He took the punishment that we deserved. He took our place 
us lost sinners who deserved the punishment of God, Jesus took our place. He suffered unimaginable pain, spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical, as the wrath of God was poured out on him. He died there. But thank God that was not the end. For Jesus was brought back to life in victory over sin and death. Through this, he provided the only way for lost sinners to be saved. Sinner, is God calling you today? Have you turned from your sin and made Jesus the Lord of your life? If not, I beg you, don't wait another minute. Don't put it off saying, I'll do it tomorrow, or I'll do it when, when I can get my life together. Listen, if you could get your life together on your own, and you could be good enough for God to forgive you, then you wouldn't need Jesus. But see, the fact remains that you cannot save yourself. You cannot earn God's forgiveness by the good works you do. So today, if you hear the call of God, if Jesus has sought you out and has come to save you, don't resist him. For if he has truly come to you, called you by name, then it is in him that you must be, place your trust and be saved. If you are lost, you can be found. Let's pray.